0: Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook but sitting next to Notion it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to Notion.com slash squared, that's all lowercase letters, Notion.com slash squared lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action and when you use the link you're supporting Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com squared.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: This week we have a
2: special episode for you from our partners Intelligence Squared Germany in Berlin. They did an event in collaboration with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Daniel, what was it about?
3: So like you say, this week's podcast was staged in Berlin with our partners Intelligence Squared Germany and the European Council on Foreign Relations. And it was a debate on the motion, Germany is endangering European stability. And on the panel we had representatives from the political parties Fidesz, and the five-star movement, as well as someone from the European Council on Foreign Relations. It was a really fiery, fantastic debate, and I hope you enjoy listening.
4: Thank you, Melissa, and good evening, everybody. Our motion tonight is, is Germany endangering European stability? And I have to say, I'm feeling quite self-conscious right now because I'm the only German on this stage. It makes me feel a little bit like the first time I met my husband's very English grandmother. We sat down for lunch in her house in Kent, and the first thing she said to me was, So, you're from Germany. My husband was a prisoner of war in Eichstadt. Do you know Eichstadt? <laughs> Granny was born in June 1916, just as the Battle of the Somme got underway. Her father lost several friends fighting the Germans in World War One. Her husband lost several friends fighting the Germans in World War II. I suspect if she was alive and in this room with us today, she would have found the notion that Germany might be a force for stability in Europe quite preposterous, or maybe being British quite funny. It's not a bad thing to remind ourselves that there's much in the world today that resembles a political satire. Britain, the biggest fan of free markets, leaving the biggest free market in the world... China, the defender of the multilateral world order, a celebrity millionaire who has become the voice of the ordinary American. You couldn't make this stuff up. Satire is dead. Now, when the unthinkable becomes thinkable, you know that you're entering a period of great uncertainty. In Germany, the unthinkable became unthinkable so many times, it is perhaps not a stretch to entertain the notion that it might do so again. There are now two stories being told about Germany. One goes like this. Seventy years after the war, Germany has become the chief guardian of Europe's liberal democratic order. The Germans are the good guys now. It's a good story. But there's another narrative. Seventy years after the war, the Germans are relapsing into bad old habits and are once again looking at Europe as a sphere of influence. The Germans have become selfish. Now... I'm in the business of storytelling, and that's a pretty good story, too. Whatever story you subscribe to, one question underpinning both is, what kind of Europe are we talking about? A liberal, democratic Europe, or a different kind of Europe, or a Europe of strong nations, of strong borders, perhaps of strong men? I suspect when we hear four voices in favor and against our motion tonight, we will also hear four visions of Europe. Now, here in Germany, we are at the geographic and economic heart of Europe. But these days, it can feel like the only part of Europe that is still thriving is the European movement against Europe. Now, my husband's grandmother was a big fan of Margaret Thatcher. She even looked a little bit like her. Margaret Thatcher was no huge fan of the Germans. In fact, in March 1990, just a few months before German reunification, Mrs. Thatcher organized a debate with a theme uncannily similar to ours tonight, she invited historians and politicians to check us, her retreat to address the question, how dangerous are the Germans? So, how dangerous are the Germans today? Are they endangering stability in Europe? For the motion is Lorenzo Fioramonti, who is the Italian Deputy Minister for Education and a member of the Five Star Movement. Lorenzo is currently on leave from his position as Professor of Political Economy at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, Lorenzo, you are married to a German. I bet you have fun dinner discussions about who is destabilizing Europe more, Italy or Germany. Over to you.
2: Um, It's a pleasure to be back in Berlin. You're right, I'm married to a German woman. I've got German children. I taught in Germany, in Heidelberg, and then at the Ahertis School of Governance in Berlin just a few years back. So it's very nice to be back. And uh, I love this country. I think it's a great country. I love this city. I think it's the most beautiful capital in the world, by far. Um, and, um, you know, the main argument I'm going to make here uh, may be very different from the other arguments you will hear tonight, including the other argument that is pro the motion. Because I believe that Germany may be endangering the stability of the European Union but for a set of reasons that somehow come from my appreciation of what Germany has done. And I think the fundamental need to exert leadership to help Europe change at a time when it needs to change if it doesn't want to break down, if it doesn't want to weaken. So... You know, like I wouldn't go back as far as the Second World War, but I mean, like the German governments of uh, the '60s and '70s, and even the '80s, worked relentlessly with other governments to make sure that the idea of a European integration process went from a mere economic agreement, economic contract, to something more tangible, to something that had a positive impact on on European citizens. Um, Germany has always been. Uh, with its strengths as well as weaknesses, an active player, in my view, working closely with other countries to ensure that this area was also looked upon by other countries around the world as a fundamental region of progress and well-being. But I think since the 1990s onward, perhaps because of a set of reforms as well as a you know, the process of drifting away from an idea of social progress and social development towards an idea that perhaps financial rectitude and financial conditions were the only things, the only things that needed in order to stabilise and, and, and maintain the prosperity of this continent. I think Europe has come to a point in which the old um, values and paradigms of social equality, high levels of well-being... Strong quality of life, Um, fundamental strong recognition of workers' rights, environmental uh, values, and so on and so forth are being endangered by growing inequality. Over the years, also because German people are extremely smart, over the years, and extremely productive, and so on and so forth, over the years, Germany has accumulated a fundamental trade uh imbalance with the rest of europe which is perfectly fine in an economy that has mechanisms that make sure that those that lose on one level can gain on another level so that the level the you know like basic level of equal opportunities and equal um you know like systems of um, of social support maintain a sort of social social balance those things are have increasingly gone out of hands. Many countries in Europe have increased their levels of inequality, and the inequality across countries in Europe is extremely significant. Now, this is just to say that Europe does need to find a vision, also a narrative to go forward. And Any political project needs a narrative, needs a mission, now, the European integration process had this mission at the beginning of the, uh, in the middle of the century. After the Second World War, the whole idea was, let's build peace. Let's make sure that we're all going to come together. Let's use economics in order to achieve those objectives. But economics was a means to an end. It wasn't an end in itself, and it became an end in itself. So now, of course, it's a very peaceful region, and I hope the peace will stay and will continue prospering. But the economics of those times is no longer in a position to answer and to respond to the challenges of present times. What we need is a stronger focus on social equality. What we need is a stronger focus on solidarity. And we cannot simply stick to a recipe that is 20 if not 30 years old when the world was extremely different. So I believe, and this is the way I see this motion, that Germany has been a guarantor of stability for many years. And shouldn't become a driver of instability by simply sticking to a set of rules, a set of parameters that have um, lost most of, of their relevance in today's world. The Europe of today, if you just read most opinions around the world by leading economists on how the Eurozone is managed, the governance infrastructure of the Eurozone, they would tell you one thing. This system is doomed to collapse. It will not keep itself together unless the rules underlying it are changed. And paradoxically, uh, a professor that I've been working with, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, Joseph Stiglitz, has has written a book that says that potentially the outcome may be that Germany will have to get out of it in order to sustain itself. And this is not what we want, right? We don't want a system in Europe where only the winners can succeed, We have always believed in a system in which the winners do well, but also those that are not winning are never left completely out. This is not just Germany, of course, but since we're talking about Germany here, I'd like to see the German government, the German leadership, more in line, more close to the French leadership, to the Italian leadership, to the leadership of the other countries, publicly saying openly, certain rules have to be rediscussed, certain systems have to be rediscussed, because they're no longer relevant in the 21st century as they were relevant in the early 90s. Thank you.
4: That was very Germanic timekeeping. I'm impressed. 8 minutes 48 seconds. Yes, <laughs> very good. Our next speaker this time against the motion is Vesela. Vesela Chernov, the program director of the European Council on Foreign Affairs and head of the Council's Sofia office. I think you're expected to go up there.
5: Unfortunately.
4: Yeah, I know.
6: <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'm here also because uh, I feel very passionate about uh, Europe and Germany's role in Europe. And there is, a, a, apart from the fact that I come from Central and Eastern Europe, um, There is a a, a biographical element to this. And uh, um, I was 15 years old when 89 happened. For all of us uh, back then, it was about the return to Europe. It was not about um, restoring uh, some kind of an an old regime. It was really about uh, uh, the return to the family. Um, and later, when I wanted to do a couple of semesters abroad, my very logical choice uh, was to come and study in Germany. Um, back then, the capital was Bonn, and uh, and I, I was studying there. At the moment when I arrived, the professor with whom I worked uh, had just written a book called um, Deutschland Zentralmacht Europas, Germany, the central power in Europe. Because this was the role that we all saw Germany playing. We all, Eastern Europeans, understood. uh, um, And this is why I'm saying that this was a logical choice I made to come to Germany. We understood that it was about the reunification of the continent, um, and that this reunification was guaranteed by Germany. German sociologist Ulrich Beck uh, had had written that after World War II and after the Holocaust, Germany was in ruins morally and economically, and now in both senses it is back. And this moral um, ground on which Germany was back was its new responsibility um, to reunite Europe. Um, Or this is at least how we very much uh, felt it. Germany was politically also very much uh, in in an internal uh, consensus about its uh, responsibility. Uh, And economically, let's face it, it was uh, Germany's hour, Germany's opportunity. The 90s um, were about... Central and Eastern Europe getting in the pace of the German economic clock, um, which continues until today. Uh, and I'm not talking only about trade and growth, I'm talking about FDI and about the very notion of Mittelstand, of, of the caring of the backbone of, uh, uh, of the economies that were supposed to come from uh, and, and create kind of a middle class. Now, many things uh, went wrong through our transition. Uh, we thought it would go much faster. We thought it would everything would change overnight. Now, 30 years later, um, we, I think, have not united the continent uh, yet. I think this business is still unfinished. There are a lot of discussions. You have probably heard uh, about multi-speed Europe Multi-speed Europe is this notion that um, you can have integrations with m- less countries on various issues, not have all the 27. You don't need unanimity vote also on many of them. And multi-speed Europe sounds in many capitals um, as let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to that world of uh, of the founding members. Maybe we add a couple. Um, to them, but let's not make it too large. Um, let's stick to that. Um, uh, you could say club, um, uh, Western club, where things are self-explanatory. Um, how the multi-speed Europe is um, resonates uh, in Central and Eastern Europe. It does resonate a lot, uh, like this business of uniting Europe uh, is not successful or not yet. And so I'm telling you this story because I think Germany is still important uh, from that perspective. It's Germany's role still uh, to keep those bits, uh, parts of the continent together. Um, We at ECFR did a study which is called um, Cohesion Monitor. And we asked um, people in the member states who work on European affairs how they feel about various issues, among which which are the countries which, the, to, which they trust most. Um, it seems that Germany is the most connected country in the whole of Europe. Germany gives the... Uh, really, the network creates the links between countries. Germany is the most trusted and most responsive country, uh, according to um, to the people we, we talk to. But just to say that 80% of those favorable to the EU in countries like Poland and Hungary... Uh, are also positive towards Germany. So even for those, uh, in, in those countries which we think are kind of um, there is a, a, the pro-European majority is, is supportive of Germany. Why is this? Because Germany, I think, is the glue that still holds Europe together. It does it morally. It does it historically. Uh, it has the burden of history that gives the limits... Uh, and also the lessons uh, from history, it is still the economic powerhouse that moves uh, uh, our region forward um, and that you can hear, uh, I think, everywhere in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, And I'm uh, actually very sure that if we talk about stability in Europe, um, it is inevitably talking about Germany. Thank you very much.
4: So two big ideas already floated that we need to talk about later, a social Europe, but also the sort of bridge that Germany perhaps is, ought to be, was, perhaps, should be more, an interpreter of East and West. Our third speaker, and in this case for the motion, is Georgi Schöpflin, uh, a member of the European Parliament, but also of Viktor Orbán's Fidesz party. Georgie sits on two committees, I understand, in the European Parliament, on foreign affairs, but also on the Committee on Constitutional Affairs. So the interesting thing, I think, uh, if I may reveal your age, is that you were born in 1939 and have that historical perspective. You were born in Budapest, but you have personal memories of German occupation, but also of the Red Army occupation. So I think that's uh, good to know as we listen to you make your case.
7: So, thank you very much for this introduction. Thank you for I- inviting me. It's a pleasure to be uh, back in Berlin. I think I first came to Berlin in 1963. You're quite right, I am very old. <laughs> um, you should be wondering, what, what is happening here? Here's a Hungarian who really sounds as if he were English. Well, it's true. You know, I grew up in the United Kingdom. My parents were refugees from communism. Um, oh but I am Hungarian Uh, I'm bilingual I could do this speech in Hungarian but then I fear none of you would understand Um, oh and this gives me a fairly strong uh, perspective on Europe and on top of that uh, my wife is Estonian uh, so I I live in Tallinn as well as in Budapest and of course Brussels and well every airport you care to name Frankfurt Airport is my great favourite we're in love with one another So what I want to do, uh, now that you've got some sense of of where I'm coming from, I think I do have a a European perspective, is to ask you to think together with me. Um, I don't want to be polemical. I'm certainly not involved in a blame game. Of course, it's absolutely right. I mean, I do remember uh, the German army in 1944. I remember the Red Army. Uh, I happened to be in Czechoslovakia during the invasion. Very unusual for somebody to live through three invasions, but it gives you a certain perspective on conflict. And one of the things I want to do is to say, well, conflict is natural. There will always be conflict. It's not conflict that's the problem. It's the resolution of conflict. In Europe, here I'm not too far from the others. After the Second World War, I think I'm right in saying we devised... The best conflict resolution method ever. And I think this is the Jean Monnier method. I am an MEP, so I, I use Brussels jargon occasionally. And I think it's this conflict resolution method of sitting ground tables, having long conversations, very unspectacular. That's why you never get this in the newspapers. No self-respecting journalist would ever re- give a, a long account of uh, what happens in the various committees, and meetings of experts, and you'd be brought to tears properly. But actually what is happening is enormously important in these long-winded discussions. Um, I sat through two of these yesterday, so I'm still uh, still touched by it. It's fairly normal. Now... If you, you're with me so far, then you should be asking, well, okay, I mean, what's my problem with Germany as a factor of potential instability? And what I want to suggest to you is the problem is the size of Germany in relation to the rest of Europe. Now, Hungary is a small country. We're sort of hovering around the 10 million. Not a very small country. I mean, we are bigger than Andorra, let's say. Um, but obviously, the Difference in size really, really does matter. If I could use an analogy hypothetically, if Germany gets pneumonia, a country like Hungary uh, is lying is on its deathbed. The Hungarian economy depends very, very heavily on Germany. Um, German industry invests heavily in Hungary, and if this were to dry up, we'd be in trouble. And incidentally, if President Trump starts uh, with this tariff business, a great many, much, a great deal of the German car industry is actually uh, outsourced to Hungary. So we are intimately tied up. Um, the single market does, does work, but the asymmetry between Germany and the other 27 states—I I hesitate because the United Kingdom is still a member, but only just. Um, That asymmetry is a problem, and I will put an argument to you as to why. It's the critical mass problem. We have a large number of people, um, more or less, uh, in the same space, not physical, geographical space. What tends to happen is the evolution of what you might call an echo chamber. People listen to one another, they don't hear the voices outside, and that, I think, is the particular problem that we're looking at. Um, Germany is immensely successful. Um, Success breeds a certain introversion, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. Um, So what I want to do is to to offer you a musical analogy. Well, it's Saint Cecilia Day, patron saint of music, and it seems to me that what we have in Europe is a polyphony, a multiplicity of voices, a multivocality. What happens... Oh, and each voice, of course, represents a particular perspective. And what happens when the multivocality diminishes because one voice is simply too strong um, and doesn't listen to the others, um, or not sufficiently, or the the, the other voices are not heard? Um, And it seems to me that this is where the danger is, this sense of a single voice dominating shift the analogy a bit the orchestra Um, and that I think is not the way in which Europe functions Europe has to be a Europe of many voices Germany sometimes behaves as if it were Europe it isn't Europe is much more than Germany but when you have a perspective when that's the Berlin perspective at least the way in which it comes over obviously in Brussels but elsewhere so finally is there a way out um Are we doomed? Well, no, I don't think we are, um, for one minute. But I think that one of the things that I would like to see is a greater openness on the part of you, German opinion, towards non-Germany. What do the Dutch think? What do the Portuguese think? Even what do the Hungarians think when they're not speaking Hungarian, which nobody else understands? Basically, my request to you is that think about it, to accept the polyphony and to accept that if there is no polyphony, then, of course, Germany really will be a danger to European stability. And having lived through the Second World War, I don't want to see it again. Thank you for your attention.
4: Another big thought... We've had too big to fail in Europe. Maybe Germany is too big to lead, too big to unite. We shall talk about it later. Our final speaker in the series is once again speaking against the motion, James Haas. He's the author of The Shortest History of Germany. I read it over the summer, and I talked about it so much that my husband doesn't need to read it anymore, basically. Over to you. you.
3: good evening. Well, there have been some shades coming even from our very polite audience of this, uh, as a Catrian poet said, the, the, the two, there's only two possible stories. Either the Germans have changed and are now nice, or that somehow they're slipping back into their bad old ways. Both of which assume that basically there was a time, in recent memory, when the Germans were rotten and there's this, surely this big historical fact that after all Germany did, did it not inflict two world well wars on Europe. Well, no, it didn't. And allow me to explain as an historian and we'll try to hope, I hope this can help to find this European vision, which, uh, which I too want. Let us go back, not to the Second World War, but to the 28th of July 754, to the Basilica of Saint-Denis, which is now just outside Paris. There something extraordinary happened. This was the first time any pope had been north of the Alps, the first time any pope had crowned a civil leader. Pepin the Short, the German-speaking Frank, who ran his Franco-German North Italian Empire made the decision which no warlord, for want of a better word, has ever made in human history. He voluntarily ceded the moral authority and some of the legal authority in his state to a supranational institution, the papacy. Not only did he do that, but in giving it the donation of Pepin, he actually provided that supernatural—sorry, supernatural, supernatural—and supernatural indeed supranational authority with the physical means to, 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 to maintain itself even without his personal help. And a distinction was made on that day between the physical power and authority of a state and the moral authority, which was to be paramount in that state, yet not of that state nor belonging to it. Everything else we treasure as a European civilization, dates from this. Magna Carta, the European Union itself, the European Court of Human Rights, the the, the, um, Transparency Index, all these things derive from that moment. Um, And this is is the signature of European civilisation, and Germany was always the principal co-signatory of that. It was that uniqueness of Europe which led to the flourishing of the high Middle Ages, the Renaissance and humanism, until the point at the late 15th century when this extraordinary culture was ready to begin exploring and being exported to the rest of the world, which it very largely has since. Then, of course, came the first great populist event in history. I refer, of course, to the Reformation. In April 1525, Prussia, after some negotiations personal negotiations between Martin Luther and the head of the Teutonic Order, was formed as the first state in European history with its very own state-controlled church, showing no allegiance to the Pope, having no moral authority or legal authority outside its own boundaries. And it's this Prussia, this ethnic, cultural, geographical and political anomaly, always separate from the rest of Germany, which conquered the whole of Germany in 1866, formally annexing it in 1871, and then used the industrial might of Western Germany to pursue a vision which had nothing whatever to do with the rest of Germany, i.e. the Prussian vision of a colonised Northeastern Europe. This whole disastrous period from 1866 to 1945 was indeed the great stability visited upon Europe, but it was not visited by Germany, it was visited by Prussia, which no longer exists, lest we forget. It was abolished. By in 1947, by the Allies who knew very well what they were abolishing and why, to the delight of Konrad Adenauer, who'd always hated the place, and under whose wonderful leadership, the Franco-German alliance, which must be the heart of Europe, which was the heart of Charlemagne's Europe, was forged. Now today, Germany is wrestling with certain undead spectres of Prussianism again. But it remains our great, indeed our only, fortress against populism. If you're going to fight populism, we have to understand it. Now, there are various complicated... You're all very intellectual chaps, and you, you, have, you understand detailed analyses. And there are very, very, various ways to define populism. And I came across one which is a little broad-based, I admit, uh, but it came to me when, I, when it was revealed in the BBC that the single most important statistical indicator of someone who was going to vote Brexit was whether they wanted to bring the death penalty back. So I extrapolate from this a bit. And I suggest that, I mean, it's broadly, but generally speaking, when we're talking about populism, we, we can sort of put it into two broad groups. It's the good guys and the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the bad guys uh, make uncosted, impossible millennial promises to their people. The g- good guys don't. The bad guys claim that there's some mysterious international force pulling the strings to blame for everything. The good guys don't. The bad guys go in Russia today and think Vladimir Putin's a great strong man, the good guys don't. You see, it actually it works, doesn't it? It's actually well, it's, quite, it's quite good, and um, the bad guys believe in closing off independent judiciaries, shutting down media outlets that don't back their regimes, and driving out intellectually free universities. The good guys don't do that. And the, what, the thing you can really tell is this the bad guys really, really love Steve Bannon. <laughs> Uh, good guys are doing nothing at all. And they like the death penalty. Ladies and gentlemen, take the boxes, choose your sides, and let's saddle up. Where are we going to find the good guys then to back us up? Where's the muscle going to be? It's going to be right here in Germany. Germany is where the good guys live. Despite all the sound and fury, largely from the anglo-sphere press, about right wing rebellions in Germany and so forth, despite that, over 75% of all Germans, that's included, never mind the 27% in, in, in Saxony and, and the link, Die Linke as well. 75% of all Germans intend, to, if, they, if they vote tomorrow, to vote for parties, which explicitly back the EU and NATO. And democracy, damn it all. So, in, in Germany, the good guys outnumber the bad guys three to one. But what the good Germans need to do, in this sense, we, we agree, I think, they need to stop being so scared of themselves. The Germans are incredibly scared of everything: chlorinated chickens, the, 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 the climate, climate change, atomic power, having some state debt. You know, it, and it doesn't take a great deep psychologist to say that people who are so scared of things, which the French don't care about nuclear power, <laughs> the, the Spanish and British don't care about being indebted, but the Germans, because you're scared of yourselves, because you bought the Prussian lie that things that happened between 1866 and 1945 are about Germany, they weren't. And if the Germans can actually understand that they were the first victims of Prussia, that they were never the bad guys, then Germany will have the confidence to say, the confidence to say, sorry, if you don't subscribe to the basic tenets of European civilization, we'll stop your funding tomorrow. Sorry to the EU6, no, it's not okay for you to cream off the tax take from the rest of us so you can take a little bit and then hand the rest back to Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. I'm talking about the Netherlands and Ireland here, quite obviously. Um, that's not okay. And they can say, do you know what? We're not the Weimar Republic. We're not all going to suddenly turn into Nazis if we have some state debt when we can borrow money at 0%. So Germany is not the cause of European stability. It's Europe's only hope of getting through this stability, and it will, only be, it will fulfill that hope if it can only understand its own true history for once. Thank you very much.
4: Well, that's certainly a way of endearing yourself with the German audience, isn't it? It's not your fault, it's Prussia's fault, and Prussia doesn't exist anymore. Um, Right. We are about to open this up to you guys, so get ready. Um, But before that, I'm going to reveal to you the results of the pre-vote. In other words, how you voted on this motion before you heard any of the speakers. We will then later hear whether there has been a big swing... And the bigger the swing, the more these guys get paid. So, <laughs> For the motion, Germany is endangering European stability. 30% in this room. 44% are against the motion. And 26 are undecided. So there's room here for um, a good swing wood. Let's see how, how it goes
0: promo code, Squared, to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting,
4: Let me open it up. Who is going to be the first? There we go. We have a gentleman over there. Please wait for the mic. Introduce yourselves. Perhaps stand up when you speak and uh, be brief.
8: Uh, Yeah, I'll try to. Uh, Thank you. My name is uh, Tim. I'm an MPP student here in the second semester. I'll try to make it as brief as possible, but I need to say two things. The first, uh, no Germany did start two world wars, and because it wasn't called Prussia at the time, that doesn't change it, and it cannot stand that this is said at this institution. Um, sorry. And the second thing. Um, the uh, proponents here, Mr. Fioramanti and Mr. Schoflin, have been very charming, and going on their way to charm us all uh, as far to even say that Germany is and Berlin is more beautiful than Rome and, and, and oh, Venice and whatnot. Um, and you've, I think... Um, Succeeded maybe even in luring on us into the belief that um, we should answer the question Mr. Shepflin asked. What is the problem not very swiftly with you? You are members of the populist parties who are con- destroying the very polyphony you were talking about. You've successfully done that in your own country, Hungary, and you're continuing to do that. In Europe. So, before we can even ask the question of whether or not Germany should be more social or whatnot and what policy, you are the people who are enabling, and you are quite dangerous because you're on the central and intellectual front of your party, enabling the authoritarians and fascists in the very parties you are purporting and pushing to power. So, my question to you is how can you stand here and tell us how we should maybe, in intricate policies, unite Europe while you are the ones who are breaking it up? Thank you very much.
4: Good. I think we're moving in the not-so-polite stage of this debate. I like it. <laughs> right. Who is going to go first? I think this was clearly directed at the two of you. Lorenzo, do you want to take sure. from, from a step? Sure.
2: Uh, f- thank you for your question. And <laughs> the, um, I-, I want to make one thing clear. I don't know how many observers from the outside know exactly uh, what is going on in Italy, but in Italy there is a very complicated uh, contract that puts two parties that don't really like necessarily each other and on a daily basis, that's why we had to sign a contract. I keep saying, you know, you don't sign a contract with people you trust. You sign a contract with people you have to work with because you're the only chance to give your country a government and because you got a lot of votes. Um, and, um, and so this is a complicated process. And, uh, you know, like we could in Italy have had, by now, a right-wing government with the majority of votes with Mr. Salvini as the Prime Minister. And it's only because we decided to have this contract with them that is now in a diluted coalition with a party that has proposed one of the most advanced environmental legislations in the country and in, in Europe, uh, tries to introduce something called the minimum conditional income, which is a diluted version of what we really wanted to do, which is trying to uplift more than 5 million poor people, absolute poor people that exist in the country. I don't know to what extent this can be considered conservative. Now, of course, as always, and this is the case also in Germany, you know, like, you have to form governments in this continent with people you don't necessarily want to go to party with. This is this is the price of politics, it's a complicated process, but we're trying in this path to recoup, you know, to help a country that only when I was a student, and even when I was a teacher here, um, by the way, you know, like, you know, the fact that I'm on leave from the university doesn't mean that I'm no longer an expert. Um, you know, the the country, Italy, had the highest this is something that I think would be interesting for everyone, especially the, the newer member states, had the highest levels of Euro um, enthusiasm in the history of the European integration process. On average, according to the Eurobarometer, 80-plus percent of Italians were in favor of the European Union, the European Common Market, the European, the European currency, and so on and so forth. Now we are the last at less than 40%. So something has shifted even in the mood of our population and somehow we have to take that into consideration. Why did it happen? And we are working day in and day out through a compromise to ensure that we are listened to in Europe, that we can work with the European authorities at the level of Brussels to try and put the country that may very well fall off the european map if things are not brought back onto, on track you know like closer and closer as one of the six member the founding members of this of this uh, of the european community back then so in this process this is what i think the members of my party are hoping to achieve a partnership with those that believe as we do that in order for europe to continue prospering we need to change it we need to revisit the founding rules especially the founding financial rules of europe this is in everyone's interest and and this and is you what And, we're you, and you
4: think that this is possible with your coalition partner who it is now ever more it, popular it's gone from 70 it doesn't, to 70%. It, doesn't
2: ma- it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it it's a two level game right so if you get a no forget it your coalition partner gets stronger and stronger if you try to build a bridge and open a dialogue and work sensibly on what can be achieved, your coalition partner gets weaker and weaker. It's a two-level game, so this is the kind of process we're trying to accomplish. The result, well, it, at the moment, it
4: looks like the Lega is getting stronger and stronger.
2: Well, exactly, because this is we're not succeeding at this. That's why also I'm here saying, if there was a strong sense from as there is from many German people and many German parties to say, maybe it's time that we rediscuss discuss where we're going as a continent. We may very well re-embrace a lot of those that are losing confidence in this process and bring them back into the protective wing of the European Union. That's exactly what is at stake at present.
4: I have a question over here. The mic coming.
1: Uh, right, just before I start, I should make this little disclaimer. I am Hungarian, <laughs> but I lived but I lived for 12 years in the United Kingdom, and I've lived for more or less three years here in Germany. And I would like to ask a question to the opposition to the motion, so it's not to make your job too easy. Now, I've been here for three years. Uh, I'm quite actively involved in politics, but my own politics right now don't really matter. My impressions since being here is that the Germans have a tendency, and this is my impression, have a tendency to, conf- in talking so much about Europe, confuse their own interests with the European interest. Now, this was, I think, most evident um, in, le- in recent years during uh, the refugee crisis. And because I follow politics in many other European countries too, I increasingly get the impression that while the Germans keep insisting on their version of, a, of how refugee politics should work, a lot of other countries in Europe are saying, well, hold on. We don't want to do it like this. And this is leading to increasing divisions between these countries. And what I keep saying to Germans who trumpet the merits and virtues and moral righteousness, I should emphasize, of their refugee system is, okay, but think about how this might come across in other countries. Do you not think that others maybe interpret this in an as arrogance and self-righteousness? And in that case, what incentive do these countries have to go along with what you propose? And is this not actually leading to more division than unity?
4: Great, good question. Let's start with you. Was this the decision by Angela Merkel not to close Germany's borders to the onslaught of refugees at the time, was that a diktat that should have been somehow handled differently?
6: um i think she should have uh, consulted others as well uh at that point uh because this was obviously something that did not concern germany alone uh and yet i think in in hindsight uh we will see that the refugee crisis was uh put under control i think when one, uh, one should when we think about germany in terms of uh Uh, whether it confuses its own interests with the European interests. And I think this is a very uh, valid uh, question. One should also consider that there are very many interests in Europe, right? Um, What Germany, I think, is trying to do, and this is what our surveys also show, um, that Germany is is playing the balancing role uh, in Europe and is trying really to, to... to have the different interests uh, included one way or the other. Sometimes it works better, sometimes it works worse. Uh, but for instance, I would give you here the example of the sanctions against Russia. I mean, if you would have asked me five years ago whether Europe was ready and and willing to, to keep sanctions against Russia for that long with uh, so many various different interests um uh in among the the member states i would have told you no um i i don't see how the various trojan horses that russia has across europe would really cons- would really agree to that but it has been really through the push uh, by germany uh, uh that we still have the sanctions uh, five years later. I'd
4: actually quite like to kick this to you. Um, in particular, you know, given your refugee background and the fact that your family, even before you became a refugee of communism to Britain, um, your family going way back were actually immigrants from Baden-Württemberg in Hungary. And as you told me, you've contributed a lot. Too hungry, So, you know, it's quite interesting, this narrative, and I, I would love to hear from you whether you think um, immigration is a bad thing per se, whether you think, uh, in fact, Angela Merkel had an alternative, uh, given in particular that your Prime Minister called the Austrians who then called Angela Merkel in, at the time, asked her to help.
7: There's a great deal to untangle here. Mm. I have no idea why my great-great-great-great-great how-many-times-grandfather left Baden-Württemberg in about 1750. Well, there was serious overpopulation in Germany. Others went to Russia, Catherine the Great. Others went to Brazil. Many went to the United uh, States a little later. You remember in the War of Independence, there were Germans fighting with the British against the Americans, Hessian troops, as I recall it. The historian present will correct me. Thank you. so, that Budwurtburg at that time was part of was an Austrian, uh, part of the Austrian realm, and he simply went from one part of Austria to the other. Um, what is actually not Hungary today is Slovakia today, but that's just a, a minor detail. Since you've expressed interest in this, this, this may amuse you. He had an unusual profession. He was a duck catcher, Entenfänger. And he did the job so well that he became court duck catcher. hoff <laughs> Um Udvari Udvar for the Hungarians among you. And stayed. I, I don't know enough about the family history. He probably married some local woman and I'm sure they were German-speaking until my grandfather's time and Hungarian as well. Some Slovak. Um, and then it was in about 1896, I think, that my grandfather decided to move from what is now Bratislava uh, to Budapest, and that's how the family came to be there. So I don't think that he was a refugee. I think he was moving from one part of the Austrian realm to the other. Well, why not? I mean, you know, there were people who Look, moved...
4: Look, I don't have a problem with that, okay. by
7: the way. No, I mean, you just raised it. I'm denying the word refugee. In my case, well not me, because I was too young to take that decision, uh, political asylum, uh, a different story. Um, like
4: many of those people who came in 2015. That's my point, the moral, the moral mm, dilemma
7: here. Well, you know, there, there are Hungarian data, which you may or may not choose to believe. Some of the people who came in, in 15 were indeed political refugees from Syria, um, Afghanistan, Probably two-thirds were not. There were a large number of Bangladeshis. Uh, There were Somalis who were on the edge. They may be political. Eritreans, probably refugees rather than migrants. is in a terrible state. And then you get Moroccans.
4: But the Syrians and the Afghanis then are fine.
7: Yes. And by the way, not widely known, the Hungarian policy and practice has been that anyone who can demonstrate that they're a political refugee can stay. There are about 1,500 to 2,000. Not many do, because actually the options are not good. I mean, we do not pay 30 euros a day, which I believe is what a refugee receives in Germany. Plus the fact they have to learn Hungarian.
4: We're running slightly out of time, but I want to, because we started late, get some more questions.
5: Yes, thank you. My name is Elke. I have lived in Italy for three years, although I am German. And I wanted to speak to those pro-motion and say, I mean, I think you are perhaps asking too much of Europe. Europe is a relatively young construction, growing all the time. So Europe is at best a youngster. And if you look at Italy or at Germany, in Italy which was founded in the 19th century, even 10 years before Germany, the Mezzogiorno has been a problem for about 150 years. The north of Italy has been economically successful and has not managed to bring the south really to prosperity. So, And in Germany, we see the same since the reunification of Germany, although tons of money have been invested in the East. We still don't have economic equality. So I think to ask of Germany to provide economic equality in the EU is something which is completely impossible. Every country will have to do their own best to organize itself better, to make reforms to give incentives for business, to have a judiciary which really works swiftly and independently, and to have a rule of law. So I think to ask the EU to provide all this in the face of things like in Italy, judiciary, it takes 20 years to get a company closed down which is really uh, bankrupt. I mean, this does not help. And Italy has struggled with the Medjugorje for, I don't know how many years, but it's certainly longer than the EU has existed. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to make it clear, I never asked Germany to provide anything. I simply said, I'd like to see Germany taking the lead, joining other countries that are willing to rediscuss what Europe is for, given the fact that things have changed. And you're perfectly right. Uh, Italy has got a lot of problems, and we failed the South in many different different occasions. I'm one of those saying it's not enough to simply give transfers to some regions if you do not if you're not willing at times to rediscuss the fundamental structures of those economies. So uh, this is not, you know, like my argument wasn't, um, you know, like take an example, look at Italy as an example what needs to be done. On the contrary, our political battle has been to re- think the economic structure of our country and also to offer to the rest of Europe the same kind of uh, point. Shall we sit together again? And this is what Macron is also asking. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's many different people, even German parties within Germany are saying perhaps it is time that we rediscuss the fundamental economic structures of this integration process. And Germany, in my view, as a leader, as a natural leader, uh, one among many, but certainly with more resources than others, should be the first to say, oh, well, it's time to do so. And that's, that's, I think that is the key message. The key message is that Germany may paradoxically become a source of instability because it somehow doesn't take its full responsibility to lead this debate towards a change and regarding the status quo as a known option. A change that I hope will be more towards a progressive set of policies that are based on solidarity and on sharing. And that also has to do also with migration. Actually I am you know, I understand that perhaps Angela Merkel may have made an abrupt taken an abrupt decision, but it was a good message and a country like ours has been asking for this kind of solidarity a party like mine on many different occasions let please show us that europe is not just a common market that europe is not just about deficits and debts and the eurogroup but it's also about getting together when we have to stand a challenge that is fundamentally a European challenge. So more solidarity, more social cohesion. These this this were, this were the fundamental pillars of the European integration process at the very beginning. That doesn't mean more money. It means understanding what are the infrastructure of our economies is fundamentally flawed at the beginning, and by changing some of those rules, we can give those that are left out more opportunities to grow, to develop according to their own means and and possibilities.
4: Before, I call on somebody to comment, perhaps from the audience, if there's a German who would sort of um, um, offer themselves up. Please take the slips on your seats and vote. Now that you've heard most of the arguments, perhaps one of you bravely will put up their hands...
9: Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Martin. Um, I'm a German, and I just have a question, really. And that's my impression has been that a paradigm shift went on in Germany after Gerhard Schröder came into power uh, when the first social democratic green coalition was established. I was delighted at the time because I thought after, you know, so many years of Helmut Kohl's reign, we needed this fresh air. And it was fresh air in many ways. But it was also part of that global movement towards a neoliberalization of the social democrats. Um, And I feel like once the left, sort of the center-left spectrum of politics had introduced this type of thinking, that money matters that business matters and that nothing else does, it became all-encompassing in society. More quickly in some societies, You know, uh, it, it was the Blair-Schroeder paper, so in, in the UK more quickly, in Germany more slowly, we have a strong social democratic base within our country, and yet this idea that money is what matters, that finances is what we have to look at, that a state needs to be efficient before anything else, became a part of our mental legacy, almost. And now we're no longer capable of letting go of that notion. But that notion makes us bad Europeans.
4: It's, because, it's
9: very, yeah, as Lorenzo was yeah. saying, the, the problem is that we can't live Europe if we reduce it to a set of numbers. We need to build it to, a, to, to an edifice of ideas of brotherhood and solidarity. And as long as we don't do that, we will destabilize this continent. And what I see from German politics is that that's exactly what's happening.
4: I think that's a really important point. And I think what is observable across the board is that as Soon after 1989, when one system collapsed and there wasn't that competition anymore, I think that's when you saw that capitalism sort of shed some of the perhaps need to sort of soften it up. And that's when the third way came along, the Clintons and the Blairs and the, and the Schröders of this world. And I wonder, Vesela, before I give it to you, Gorgi, whether you think that the West actually has something to learn here from the East. Because, you know, a lot of things went wrong uh, behind the Iron Curtain. But as far as solidarity and social welfare states, perhaps there are some things we can learn from you.
6: Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I think there maybe there are two or three things one one could uh, highlight here. The first thing is that big societal changes... Uh, can frighten people. And that's what we saw in our societies after '89. Uh, societies became much more conservative and much more prone to fear-based politics. Um, and we see this now everywhere in Europe when we th- think about climate change, about, um, I don't know, artificial intelligence, about the future... Uh, people seem to be to become more conservative and and to be uh not to be that optimistic anymore um, Secondly, I think the lesson from from the east is we we never underestimated the russia threat uh, and the west didn 't believe us for a very long time and it took maybe i mean the, the, we we keep we kept hearing they're like you right and at some point we realized that it was too late mm-hmm. um, and if uh, if you look at the numbers today you will see that the penetration of Russia in our societies is therefore I think higher uh, simply because at some point uh, we realized that this was a battle in which we were alone mm-hmm. um, and maybe the third point is that creating soft autocracies happens slowly and you don't notice it um and it can happen even after a very fierce battle for for democracy as we had it in our countries for 20 years um and those autocrats they find each other they support each other uh we hear now that mr gruevski of macedonia who has been sued for corruption has got a refugee status in, in Hungary um, uh, on the base of the same convention that Mr. Orban wanted to disregard it, um, uh, on a previous occasion. This lesson, I think, is, uh, is something when we talk about stability, something to keep in mind. Democracy and stability not, don't go hand in hand always. Yeah. And there is a trade-off that one needs to make there.
4: I will uh, recall for you the original vote. Initially, when you arrived, you voted 30% in favor of the motion, 44% against, and there were 26% undecided. Now, a good sign after any debate is that the undecideds have actually gone down to 15%, down by 11 percentage points. There is now 28% only who agree with the motion. That's down to... And 57% (laughs) disagree. (laughs) I think these guys get an extra beer over dinner in a minute. Now, it's impossible to sum up such a rich debate this evening, but, you know, let me try anyways. You know, I'm a journalist, and we journalists have this motto, first simplify, then exaggerate. Um... I would say, <laughs> nice, I would say what we've seen tonight is a teaser of that very important European election next year. Because I think what we've seen tonight is arguments trying to define what Europe we want and what Europe we're prepared to work for and pay for. And I think next, next, Europe, next, next year's election is, is possibly the most important Europe, European election we've ever had. It's kind of a battle for the soul of Europe. And tonight you've seen a teaser of that. Thank you all very, very much. And thank you to the European Council of Foreign Relations for hosting this debate and for Intelligence Squared. I think everybody hopefully had a really interesting evening.